Listener Production. Shares. Market. The S&P. The ISX. Stocks. This is the Motley Fool Money Mailbag. Welcome to Motley Fool Money, our very special and newly early, as you know by now, podcast mailbag edition. This is an eight o'clock release. Andrew and I got up bleary-eyed very early this morning. We had our coffee. We're sitting in our pajamas. No, we're not really. We pre-record this, as you know, but we are happy to still record it at eight o'clock in the morning. Release it, sorry, eight o'clock in the morning. Well, I, I am. I am in my. I am in my pajamas for what it's worth. If that that counts well, for anything. Just, just quietly, if someone pays me enough money, I will release the video version of this podcast, <laughs> and uh, you can see Andrew's pajamas in all their Bart Simpson glory. Uh, <laughs> I, just, I just wish they'd be if you, just longer pants. Would be nice, mate. <laughs> He, of course, with the Bart Simpson pyjamas, is Andrew Page, the founder and managing director of a private online investment club called... Hey. Um, um, oh, what's it called? Strawman.com. Oh, Strawman.com, that's right. You're almost there. Oh. You're almost full marks, almost. <laughs> almost. I, of course, am Scott Phillips from The Motley Fool. Uh, mate, thank you for joining me on this proverbial Thursday, this pretend Thursday, well, real Thursday, pretend Sunday, to go through some questions, we have got so many great questions from our listeners, mate, as we always do. Always. Uh, so let's kick into them. Uh, heaps of good ones. I've given you the details on Friday. I may give them again later, but thank you for everyone who sends questions in. We try and answer almost all of them. If there's too many on the same topic or repeats, we kind of will probably tip over them on the assumption that you've heard the answer or you can find the answer elsewhere. But uh, we try and answer them as well as we can. And even if they're kind of slightly overlapping, if there's different stuff, we'll try and do it because it helps to add some more colour. So Jackson send us an email and Jackson luckily you've said at the end also you can say my name uh, a general warning to everybody uh, as I've said before I read from top to bottom so if you don't want your name mentioned please put it at the top uh, Jackson says hi Scott and Andrew thanks for the great content I typically listen to your podcasts on the way to work and they always get me thinking about my own investments and portfolio I've just started my investing journey he says about nine months ago and have decided to dollar cost average into ETFs and managed funds as I believe it will be the best way to start out However, while listening to your podcast, he says, Scott mentioned that, brackets, much to my sadness, close brackets, managed funds aren't the best unless I understand and have analysed every stock involved in the fund. I might have said every stock, but yeah, that's a general idea. To say I haven't analysed every stock in the fund would be an understatement, says Jackson. But I felt that the auto investing for Vanguard was extremely helpful and currently only lets you invest in managed funds. I've since stopped these monthly auto investments and just started investing in ETFs but I struggle to ensure I am dollar cost averaging as I don't have the funds to invest a minimum of $500 in each ETF every month. What would you recommend I do? Resort back to the auto investments in managed funds, which only cost 200 bucks a month or start saving my money and invest only every half or quarter of the year. Thanks and keep up the good work. Also, you can say my name. Cheers from Jackson. All right. I'm going to ask you your answer, Andrew, but I'm going to start with a couple of clarifications. Um, my general view on funds, not just managed funds, but ETFs in general, is I love passive, low-cost, index-based ETFs. Once you get away from that, whether they are off-exchange managed funds, i.e. just send them a check and they'll send you the money when you want it back, or even ETFs on the market that aren't low-cost, broad-based, index-based ETFs. In other words, it might be a cybersecurity on oil or a bear or a double gold leveraged whatever, whatever. Uh, I don't love those as a general rule, particularly if you're trying to be a passive investor and build as Jackson is. So just to be really, really clear about what I meant there. Um, by the way, and I will say this very quickly before Andrew answers, um, Jackson, I'm not referring to Vanguard's index-based off-market funds. And if, if one of them was the one... Now, I can't give you personal advice either, Jackson, by the way. Um, so I can't recommend anything to you personally. So you say, what would you recommend I do? The answer is nothing. Go and see a financial advisor. But in general... Uh, 
Vanguard have index-based uh, index managed funds that are just simply not exchange traded. They're just off the market. They are completely fine. Completely, completely fine. So I'm not saying don't do that. So really, hear me really clearly. If I wasn't clear, Jackson, it's my mistake. So really, really, really clearly. Whether you're investing in an ETF, an exchange-traded fund, or a traditional index fund that's not exchange-traded, as long as it's low cost, as long as it's passive, as long as it's broad-based and tracks a reliable large index, massive fan. Anything, ETF or otherwise, that is higher fee or active can be fine, potentially. But as you rightly point out, unless you've done the work to understand whether or not it's a good investment, then I'm not a fan at all. So let me get that right out of the way. Mm. With that said, Andrew, what do you reckon Jackson should do, mate? Should he uh, go back to investing in the non-exchange stuff and put less money in per month? Should he um, just simply reduce the frequency of his investments to make sure he invests the 500 bucks a month? What would you do? It's... um. I'll make a comment that I often do. I, we get we get to sort of the don't say it end depends. Of, and well, we get to the we get to the pointy <laughs> end of the stick where it's kind of like you know both are really good options. You know, yeah. I always I just feel it's that the the big move is the zero to one. The the person who's not doing anything who decides yep. that they want to spend less than what they earn and invest regularly. Kind of, what you've done that you you've just jumped ninety percent of the way, right? Like mm-hmm. that's fantastic. Mm-hmm. And then we can sort of get into the weeds and sort of like. Mm. optimize and think what's the best sort of way of doing it. I think they're both yep. good options and you're never going to have any major, major regrets, I'm sure, with with, mm. with either of them. Um, but for me personally, I'd probably tend towards the the, the second one. I, I love the liquidity and convenience of exchange-traded funds. Mm-hmm. I don't have to write yeah. a letter and why yeah. just, just jump onto my trading platform and press a button, it's done. It's just easy, mm-hmm. super easy. Um, I think we can all overthink things a little bit when it comes to dollar cost averaging. You know, whether it's every week, every month, every quarter, every six months, even every year, I think when over the long arc of time, and if, you know, if you are a long-term investor, it's probably not going to make a huge amount of difference. <laughs> I, I tend to think that because you will be paying brokerage, this is less of a factor these days because brokerage is just trending yeah. to very low. In the old days, we would say, wait till you save up $1,000 or something because you don't want, you don't want the, 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 uh, the brokerage tax you know, uh, uh, re- reducing the amount of money that's actually being put to work. So you sort of want to you want to make sure it's it's worthwhile. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, yeah, but basically, when you've got enough money, you know, save it up. Oh, I have five hundred bucks. It's going to cost me five dollars a trade. Boom! I'll just chuck it in. You don't you don't have to you don't have to have a set date. It's mm-hmm. it's more perhaps influenced yeah. by by when you have the funds available. But the important thing is is that you're doing it, and mm-hmm. and you know. Everything else from there is fine-tuning. Love it. Um, I'm going to add a little bit of fine-tuning just for the fun of adding some value, but you're absolutely right, mate. You're 100% right. Um, Jackson, if it's a question of ETF-based Vanguard index funds or off-market Vanguard index funds, I don't have a – whatever. Exactly the same thing. Uh, I think the fees are slightly different, but like it's tiny, tiny, tiny difference in there. Already tiny fractions of a percent anyway, like it's it's immaterial. So either either is perfectly fine. Uh, second thought is brokerage doesn't need to be that much of an issue. There are plenty of cheaper brokers these days and the even the number of shares you need to buy isn't necessarily the $500 parcels anymore. Um, so you can probably invest in those, frankly, monthly at the sort of $200 level you want to as long as your brokerage is cheap enough and be careful about that because it can be expensive. So be careful about that. Um, next, as you've already kind of alluded to, Andrew, dollar cost averaging is, is a concept, not a 
rigorous religious exercise that happens that needs to be done monthly or any other time. I know it kind of I hate having money not invested too. I hate having cash in my brokerage account. I want it in the I want it in the market. Uh, so I get that feeling, but it really doesn't matter. Two hundred bucks monthly, five hundred bucks every two and a half months, exactly the same thing. If for all intents and purposes over an investing lifetime, it's completely immaterial. Um, only thought additionally is just have a think about how many ETFs you have. Um, you may not need that many ETFs or they may be overlapping or you may find that fewer ETFs and a, and a larger investment per ETF might actually be give you a perfectly good solution. And so there might be a halfway house between those two. Um, whatever gets you investing, keeps you investing, as Andrew said, is the best answer for mine. Yep. Uh, let's go on, mate, to a question from Tim who hasn't said, I can't say his name. So thanks, Tim. Uh, G'day, Scott and Rampage. I've been listening to the pod for about two years. Love your work simplifying and educating on the terrifying world of finance and investing. A quick question regarding super. For context, I'm 32 years young with an investment portfolio outside of super, including a small commercial property, a residential investment property, and some index ETFs. My question is this. Now, again, Tim, I will say, as I said to everybody, the more information you give us, the harder we have to work not to give it, make it personal advice, but I understand you're giving us some thoughts, so I'll, we'll go with it. Um, my question is this. My super is invested in a high-growth fund with a split of, and he says, it's, I'll, I'll round the numbers up, 40% Australian shares, half international shares, 5% infrastructure, 5, 4% property, 4% cash. Is there an opportunity cost, he asks, involved in having 4% cash? Also, am I doubling up on property when I already have investments outside that I plan to keep forever? My super provider offers index options, I'm thinking of changing it to 70% international shares and 30% Australian. This is also about 0.5% cheaper in investment and ICR fees. Am I trying to be too clever? Should I just let the professionals do their thing for half a percent? Thanks and fool onwards and upwards. I like that. And that's from Tim. Uh, so we can't give you specific advice, Tim, as you as you well know. Uh, so we won't try and talk to yours, but let's ask the questions in order, mate. 4% cash, opportunity cost or dry powder? Uh, opportunity cost. If, Ooh, if, so it should if, be invested? Yeah, 100%. 100%. I mean, super. For a 32-year-old, 30 years of compound, it, it is nothing yeah. but a drag. <laughs> In fact, True. even if you take headline CPI figures at the moment, you're actually going 5% backwards on that investment. You yeah, know, it's like to, 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 there's a difference between an investment manager who just doesn't have, doesn't see any good opportunities, I suppose. Yeah. But one who's actually mandated to carry 5%. <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, no matter what, yeah. I will always have 5%. It's sort of like, why? Yeah. Why would you do yeah. that? Now, yeah. cash is wonderful for someone who is mm-hmm. who's living off off their nest egg. I mean, that's, that's great. It's, mm-hmm. Everything in this life has an opportunity cost. Cash is wonderful because it'll always be there. Right, mm-hmm. um, it, but it, it's it, yes. as I say, it's yeah. just going to go backwards each year due to in, due to inflation. But that's that's a yeah, really good, good trade off if you're 76 years of age. And you know, yeah. um, as, as <laughs> someone I used to know said, they don't buy green bananas anymore, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which I just is great. It's very, it's, it's kind of it's com- um, uncomfortably funny, isn't it? That one, you know. Um, yeah. But but yeah, for a 30 for a 32 <laughs> year old, no, nah. yeah, no, no, yeah. no way. I like it. Um, I completely 100% agree. Is he doubling up on property when he's already got investments outside that he plans to keep forever? Would you have property in a, in a super fund and then property outside super? Is that doubling up? Yeah, I think it is doubling up to some extent. I mean, it, let, let's, say, let's say that you've got a... I'll just make up some numbers here. Let's say you've got $1 million in a commercial property and an investment mm-hmm. property and you've got $100,000 in an equity portfolio. I mean, do you really... 
do you, do you really need a part of that equity portfolio in property when, you, when you've got the vast majority of it or already there? Mm-hmm. Um, even from a diversification angle, it's kind of like it's yeah. not going to move the dial much when, you, when you're <laughs> yeah, looking at those right. particular numbers. And that, yeah. that tends to be the way just because individual properties are so expensive. I mean, unless, unless this 32-year-old does have, you know, a couple million dollars in an equity portfolio, <laughs> that's likely to be the case. So I would say you've already got a very significant exposure to property. Um, mm. Keep keep the share portfolio for the shares. Yep, I think it, that makes sense. Personal to bias. Me too. Yeah, yeah. I look with, with the exception that let's let's say it's half property and half super. Let's just just make a life easier. Fifty fifty, right? Yep. The four percent doesn't move the dial either way, as you say. So like, I, do I care? No. Is it bad? No. Is it good? No. It just is. Like four percent. Mm. Like four percent of super. Two percent of your total investment portfolio. Whether you added or subtracted it, it's just not going to be impactful over a long enough period of time. So no. I, I wouldn't bother. But it, it is what it is. Um, now you like this one. Uh, he's thinking of changing it to seventy percent international, thirty percent Australian. It's also at zero point five percent cheaper in investment fees. What do you reckon? I think that adds up for a 30-year time frame. Yeah. I think that's how I do it with my super. Mm-hmm. It's very simple, mainly ETFs. 70-30? Uh, <coughs> pardon me. Um, I actually do. So I think I don't okay. know, exactly mm-hmm. like that. Well, only because my my in, mm. my portfolio outside of super is, is, mm. is 100% Australian, ASX. Mm, mm, mm. So it's kind of yeah, like, yeah. well... Yeah. Again, when when I sort of look at look at the whole pie, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> I, I have no international exposure in my my portfolio outside of super. So it's kind of like I just I sort of tip the scales a bit by by going that way. Mm. Uh, and when I say international, I think it's it's virtually all US, Nasdaq kind of stuff. So and, and that's just me, by the way. Up. I don't want to suggest that that's the right way to do it, but that's that's how yeah. I do it. I give you the chance twice to jump on the fund managers charging zero point five percent. You've avoided it, so I'm going to take the opportunity given you didn't. Um, uh, should you, look again? We can't tell you what you should do, Tim. But uh, do I want to pay half a percent if I'm looking for a thirty-year market-ish matching performance? Unless you have confidence that half a percent gives you more than half a percent in performance, because if you only get that, then you're you're, you're still easy, right? So if the market does ten, this goes to ten and a half, and then take half in fees, you still haven't gone forwards. So they're going to have to do at least that plus more on top of what the market's going to do. Over time, forever, for the entire duration of your, frankly, 70 years, you're going to have that money invested for probably. Let's assume you're 32 now. By the time you get old enough like us, you'll be living for 100 years. So 70 years worth of investing, do you want to spend half a percent for 70 straight years and hope you might get a better result than the market? You can. I wouldn't. Uh, so take your, I would take half a percent off the table for me, uh, the 70-30. The, the other thing I would say for what it's worth is kind of what you alluded to around, which is think about the whole pie. And to me, the, my broad answer for the whole question is think about the pie. So it's not super versus not super. It's like my total investable assets. Now think about if you want access to them earlier then things are outside inside super. We've talked about that a lot over the past few weeks. But overall, your entire retirement nest egg is these two things combined. The fact they're artificially split is kind of, you need to try and put that out of your head and ask yourself, is 70% shares, 30% sorry, 70% international, 30% Australian, plus the property you've got, whatever, whatever. Does that seem right? If it's right, go for it. Fantastic. Um, I don't have a strong view. I think that's a really good mix, quite honestly. I'm not. I'm about 50-50 RAM, I think I've said before. Maybe a little bit more international because even in, on the ASX, I own the NASDAQ ETF. Um, I've got direct investments in the US as well. So I'm probably more than 50% international. It's not even necessarily deliberate. It's kind of how it's evolved uh, with my US shares and my local and money where I've added money to some different places at different times. And it's roughly that. Um, uh, yeah, it might, might be about 50-50. So look, I... Again, it's kind of reasonably, nah, there's no, there's no perfect answer. 
I think a lot of international and a lot of Australian is good. Um, we're 70, 30, 60, 40, 40, 60, 30, 70. I, 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 could, I couldn't strongly have a view against or for any of those necessarily as individual options. Um, but again, as you say, 70% international in the context of half your portfolio outside super means only 35% international. And that's completely fine as well. It's not another good or bad. It just is what it is. Yep. Any more for that, mate? No, that sounds good. Different Tim. Hi, guys. You were talking today about selling down an investment portfolio nearing retirement. This is a couple of weeks ago. To move towards dividend-paying shares. I was surprised you didn't mention that in pension phase, all capital gains are tax-free. This is inside super, obviously. A growth portfolio with huge unrealized gains could be sold and reinvest into income-producing stocks without creating any capital gains tax, as long as the portfolio was no more than currently $1.7 million. Thoughts? So Tim, Tim is right. And so inside super, you pay 15% tax on capital gains now. And if you sell them in, as you, in accumulation, once you're in retirement phase for that first $1.7 million, if you're lucky enough to have more than that, uh, you can sell any, any income in pension phases currently tax-free. Two thoughts, Tim. Firstly, that may not be the case by the time we get to retirement. So you're taking regulatory risk. I'm not saying it will or won't, just you don't know. Um, secondly, you're absolutely right. As long as you get to retirement with those specific growth shares, uh, if you're 30 today, for example, the next 35 years, if you're going to hold them for exactly 35 years, you're fine. But if you're buying them in um, in super and you want to sell them in five or seven years, when to use the example from Thursday or from Friday, Fortescue goes to $29 a share, uh, do I hold them and hope they don't fall for the next X years after that so I can avoid the capital gains tax or I sell them now and pay the tax? So you're absolutely right. If you're 58 and you can see you know, retirement from here and you've got less than $1.7 million and you're comfortable and confident the government won't change the rules, I think you're absolutely right. And I wouldn't, I'm not a, I'm not a conspiracist as you guys know. So I wouldn't even necessarily avoid it because I think they're going to. I'm just saying there are, it, it, it's one thing to say if, if between now and then nothing changes and it's inside super, which we didn't necessarily specify and your portfolio is less than $1.7 million and, 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 yes, you're absolutely right. And that should be part of the consideration. So um, Tim, I, think, I really appreciate you raising it. I don't think, nor do I think you were saying, by the way, that it was this that simple. There are moving parts and reasons to be mindful of what might happen next. But yes, absolutely. If you got to 59 and a half, you'd be mad. <laughs> you'd be mad to sell your growth stocks, invest in income producing stocks, and then retire, then go into pension phase, and then you know miss the opportunity to pay no tax on those capital gains. So you're absolutely 100% right. Yeah, that was a that was a fail on our part. We should have mentioned that. That was an yeah. excellent point, and thanks thanks for raising it. Very good point. Let's go to a getting through this question about unusually fast for us. But Michael's got a long one, so this will slow us down, which would be uh, more on more on uh, pace for us. Uh, Michael says, "Hi, Scotty and Rampage. I'm loving this Rampage stuff. Long time listen, but first time writing in with a question." He says, "I started investing in 2019 when I first stumbled across the Motley Fool. Have been a subscriber of Extreme Opportunities, Rule Breakers, and now Dividend Investor." Uh, the three I don't run. Thank you very much. Um, my portfolio consists of small to medium cap and US tech shares, says Michael. Uh, consistently dollar cost averaging the last three years into these high growth stocks and not really enjoying the volatility, he says, with one of those emojis with the kind of the teeth, you know, the kind of shocked kind of freaking out face. Luckily, your weekly pods have helped me to stomach it though. Currently down 5%, considering it was up, 40, up 45% late last year. I guess that's the pain to go through before I could see some gains. Yeah, it's pretty painful. Your recent pod around the best time to transition from growth to dividend really got me thinking through my own situation, since most of my holdings are in high growth as I'm currently in my early 40s. The sell down and the tax implication conundrum. Just the thought of seeing the portfolio cut by 25% as described 
or seeing the asset holding diminish over time, selling down for living expenses. Both these options do not sound appealing and would compound my anxiety as I grow older and ever more reliant on the income. I love that you're thinking forward, Michael. This is great. So I have been thinking about how I would structure my portfolio with a long-term horizon in mind and taking into account some of those points mentioned in your pod. Hold forever, diversify, dividends, minimize tax, try to beat the market. Oh, you've been listening and taking notes, Michael. Nice. I'd love to hear your thoughts on the following. Of course, it's general discussion purposes, not personal advice. Thank you, Michael. One, he says property. Take advantage of home or investment property to unlock a safe level of equity and leverage an investable amount for a share portfolio. He says, I know leverage may not be for everyone. Essentially transition to a more diversified portfolio from property to more liquid assets, as most Australians are close to 100% invested in the family home. This transition may help in interest being deductible through debt recycling. Based on the previous pod, he says, I know Ram's view on property being a financial asset. I'm a renter myself and a landlord, uh, as the cool kids call it, rent vesting. My views align with RAM. Property shouldn't be viewed as a financial asset, but the fact that it is and supported by the government, uh, we need to just play along. Sorry for my rant, he says. Two, shares. Use the funds from step one and regular savings to create a share portfolio outside super. Focus on Aussie stocks that have a habit of producing small amount of dividends and have a growth component to mature and increase their dividends in the next five to 10 years or so. This is where I find Motley Fool subscription service so valuable. Thank you, Matt. And then three, super. Maximize the super contribution to take advantage of the 15% tax and invest purely in US high growth shares. Take advantage of the feature of super not being able to access until 65 to stop me selling when markets are falling. And the tax-free component, he says, which of course, uh, Tim just mentioned. With the structure above, one hopes the high growth stocks inside super will have a very long runway to maximize their returns and would not trigger capital gains. Again, the same comment. At the, right, at the ripe old age of 65, one could access the total amount from, uh, from super to pay off any leveraged family home or investment property. This may be a way to transition high growth stocks to yield investment assets. If one held an investment property, there would be a steady rental income. There you go. That's a pretty detailed, pretty thorough way to think it through. Uh, I quite like the I quite like the idea. So, use property, you know, get, generate some generate some some funds largely through borrowing, then whack them into shares, uh, super normal. Uh, sorry, in shares in, in his own name, and then high growth stuff again, as Tim said, uh, inside super, so you can sell in X number of years and and pull out the uh, tax free capital gains and go from there. What do you reckon, mate? Yeah, I like it. Like all of it, I think it's good. Um, We've often said before that the, the trouble with leverage, and leverage is something you do have to, of course, be very careful with. Mm-hmm. But the way that it's been suggested there is, is when it's when it's against the home, you don't have that margin mm-hmm. call component, so you're never a yeah, forced seller. Totally. Um, you know, assuming you don't get out of whack with your mortgage payments and the rest of it. But mm-hmm. but yeah, I, I like that a lot. I mean, it makes sense, right? Because we live in an inflationary system, and I'm not talking about the sort of above average inflation at the moment. Just in, in mm. normal times, right? It's sort mm. of, mm. in fact, the RBA's mandate is to target two to three yes, percent inflation. Exactly. Yeah, so when yeah. you have a long-term debt like that, mm. Mm. the debt in real terms goes down each year, mm. and yet the debt, the money that you've borrowed, is going into assets that, if you're doing it half right, will be going up each year. Yeah. So leverage, actually, when 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 judiciously, prudently, conservatively used, can actually be a, a wonderful thing. People as long get- as your rate of return beats the interest bill, though, that's the bit that doesn't. Free money is not free money if you're paying for it every year. So you've still got to make sure you earn a return meaningfully in excess of the interest you're paying. Otherwise, oh, you're just treading water. Yeah, good point. Good point. No one blinks an eye if they say, "Hey, I'm going to mm-hmm. young couple. We're going to buy a house, and uh, just just pay that off 
uh, over time. Mm, mm, even even if even if they're borrowing eighty percent of the value of that house, <laughs> no one yeah, blinks an yeah. eye, and and, exactly. and rightly so, right? You know, all the, all else being yep. equal, I mean, why not? It's it's a, it's, a, it's actually a very sensible lifetime shelter. Yep. Yeah, it's, yep. it's got to yep. become a forced saving and the rest of it. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to sort of say to someone, "Hey, I'm going to borrow. I'm going to I'm going to build a, a portfolio. I'm going to borrow eighty percent of the funds." People mm-hmm. would look at you as if you were just, you know, "What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. That is the craziest thing in the world." Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. But I think you know, uh, uh, theoretically, they're they're, yep. they're kind of the same as long as as long as you're not you know, as you rightly say, you're confident of getting a return that's above the cost of interest. And I would say if you're just doing nothing other than as we've often talked about, broad-based index mm-hmm. funds, which you can probably mm-hmm. expect the long-term average is somewhere between, yeah. Yeah. let's call it 8 and 12% per annum, and you're, you're paying well below that, it's probably not a hard bet to make. And, you, and you're not a forced seller at any point because you don't have – volatility is, is, is the risk here. But if, if you're mm-hmm. not going to get a knock on the door because the market yeah. just had a big wobble and someone's saying, we've, we, we need you to – we're going to force sell you mm-hmm. – um, then yeah, I, I actually I actually I actually have a huge amount of of sympathy for that that kind of approach. And if I owned a house, <laughs> um, <laughs> I'd probably I'd probably take some equity against it to do exactly that. Hundred percent. A couple of things from me. Um, major one, Michael is I think Ram's absolutely right. And we talked about either yesterday or so Friday or today the difference between rational and realistic, and and temperament being the difference. We talked about the market movements. It was on Friday. Uh, and I'm just I, my my only question to all of our listeners, and Michael, particularly to you, just given the question, is you talked about the stomach churning gains, and you talked about how you know you appreciate the the, the pod, which we appreciate too. Uh, thank you for listening. Um, just just the other thing that doesn't get covered by Ram's answer, which is perfect, is just how likely are you to be able to stay the course during that volatility? Um, and that that's the case whether it's high growth stocks, but more so if you're borrowing because you run the risk of compounding the problem if you lose money and then sell out of kind of you know uh what's the word <laughs> capitulation i suppose you may lock in that loss and then still have the debt to pay so just i just wanted to just want to flag that um i i'm more conservative than ram when it comes to leverage a little bit i think uh, largely because i want to make sure that our listeners don't assume they're going to be better at handling it than they actually are the 90 percent of average drivers thing we talk about every time so again i'll throw that back in i know i do it every time i'll throw it back in just for the sake of it because the the right theoretical portfolio uh and, and i actually agree with ram i think the structure sounds sounds very good just be mindful that um you know if and when you are tempted to make a decision that maybe a sub or financial decision just to stop the pain or because you get um hit up with something that maybe is not uh a situation that maybe you don't expect or, or you make a decision or you take some circumstances that weren't in your plan uh yeah the, the old the old Mike Tyson line, which everyone does all the time. Everyone's got a plan to get punched in the face, and so just <laughs> just that. be just Love be it. just be careful with that. But otherwise, I I completely agree with Ram. One from Matthew, mate. He says, "Dear Scott and Ram, my essential details are." This feels very uh, speed dating, Matthew. Let's go with it. Uh, I've been listening for twelve months. Never miss an episode. Thank you. This is my fourth question. Oh, good man. And love your pod and the community service you provide. Fair enough. Okay, that's that's good. We'll take that. Uh, Matthew, uh, I'll invite you back for a second date. I have a suggestion I would love to hear your opinions on. Are there alternative tools to interest rates when it comes to managing inflation? And we talked about this actually last week as well, um, which, by the way, I then threw in a, you know, an email. So um, thank you for that question. I can't remember who that was from. Uh, Joe, I think it was from memory. But here's, here's, uh, here's Matthew's solution. He actually, funnily enough, says the same things as Joe, but something else as well. 
He says, interests do not cover the entire population. We know that. And arguably, they impact the wrong sector of the population. Here are two suggestions, he says. Firstly, tax. Why not increase tax rates? The government will collect more revenue and it covers a broader base of the population. Given our overcomplicated tax system, overcomplicated tax system, which is another topic for another episode, he says, we'd have to be more specific on which tax to increase. I would vote to increase GST, as this is the fairest of all taxes, and businesses shouldn't be impacted too much. What do you think? And then he says superannuation. And this is exactly the same as, as Joe's point, which I love. And uh, I'm, I'm, only, I'm only jealous that you two blokes thought of it. And I didn't. So thank you. But he says the same thing. Could we not increase the portion of our salaries that go into super and have this fluctuate as set by some central non-government body so it's not politicized? Good choice. He says exactly the same things as Joe's. So uh, Matthew, we've covered Joe's response and Joe's thoughts. But I'll go to a question one, mate. Should we just, just cut the chest and use the tax rate instead? Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, <laughs> I love these ones. Yeah, I mean, yes is the answer, but right. the, it's going to sound really cynical, I suppose. But it's Go just on. whenever you've got a politician involved, it's it's going to the incentive structures are going to be around what keeps me mm. elected short term rather than what might yes. be more sensible long term policy. Yes. It's just it, it is what it is. No one's necessarily evil here. It's just how the game is sort of structured. So while this is this is kind of my my criticism of MMT, which has sort of been in vogue what was a couple of years ago, this idea of modern yep. monetary theory, which basically says governments should just create as much money as they need for anything mm-hmm. and they just take it out of the system with a more dynamic tax, tax policy. Yeah. Actually yep. I think um uh, you know, cognitively, I, I really like it. I think I think it it's kind of like yeah. communism. It's going to be a controversial topic. <laughs> oh dear, oh dear. Works, it works wonderful. Oh, works wonderful. The podcast. Let's put some time aside. Shall we talk about communism, Andrew? It's well, twenty-nine it minutes in. It works. It works in theory, right? It just doesn't work in practice, yes. and yes. it doesn't work yes. in practice because people are people are people. Correct. So, yep. so yep. while I I think if if we lived in a perfect world with a benevolent, yeah. Yeah. hyper-intelligent yep. dictator, like one day when when the Google <laughs> algorithm is running the world. And we've 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 solved yeah, the AI yeah. control problem. That's probably yeah. the exact way that we should do it, or that the AI should do it. But while ever we've got uh, flawed human beings with with uh, making the decisions, I, I I just think it's going to be a recipe for disaster. Unfortunately. Yeah. 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 I I I completely agree with you on MMT, modern monetary theory, for exactly that reason. It, it's like, and, and at the end of the day. Uh, using the tax system, we're using rates. It's kind of the same thing. Like it's it, it, they've kind of developed this entirely. Um, the MMT guy's going to. Uh, thank you for raising it now, mate. Now we're going to get a bloody mm-hmm. avalanche of correspondence. Controversial. Um, it's no different to the, the current system. Like for mm-hmm. all, for all, it's like let's throw everything up in the air and come down with exactly the same system, just slightly moderating the the source of it, whether it's tax or, or rates. Like mm-hmm. that's it. Like mm-hmm. for for all of the other moving parts, they've written books and books and books on it, so they can just replace one with another. It's like uh, anyway. Um, I agree with you entirely, Andrew. I don't know that tax actually is enough to do the things that we're trying to do and be fairer than rates, depending on how it's implemented, to, to Matthew's point. Um, only in the sense that flat rate taxes tend to be regressive by nature. And so while interest rate increases hit people who maybe don't deserve it or who just are a smaller subset and hit them harder than someone else. If I have a million dollar salary and a hundred thousand dollar left on my mortgage and someone's on, you know, eighty thousand dollars a year and trying to pay off a four hundred thousand dollar mortgage, you know, the, the rate the rate increase hits us differently. 
even if I had a bigger mortgage but a much bigger salary, it would still hit, them, hit us differently. GST kind of does the same thing, right? Because, you know, if I, maybe I'm buying my Ferrari, maybe I'm not. Maybe I'm buying a Cam uh, Camry, maybe I'm not. Um, but it's harder for um, lower income earners to avoid spending things on groceries and electricity and stuff like that or, you know, other things that would, be, would attract a GST. So I'm not entirely sure that it would be fairer than, than interest rates, quite honestly, to use GST. Um, and if we use the income tax system, it probably would be, um, uh, to, you couldn't do it in real time, realistically. I mean, you probably could, but if you ask businesses to adjust what they're extracting on a, on a monthly, weekly basis, I guess maybe at some point. Um, so yeah, look, I don't, I don't, I don't hate the idea. Um, I don't think it's better than super for the reason we've talked about before. Um, firstly, no one's going to increase taxes. The politicians aren't going to do it, and the uh, public aren't going to vote for it because we're all not that very that bright, and we care more about now. You know, f future Scott can get stuffed. I want the money now. That's mm -hmm. um, why. It's why the central banks themselves are non-politicized, right? For exactly that reason. Um, so you know, it's it's a it's a not a bad thought, Matthew. I think along the lines of super, I get the why. Um, I don't think it's politically likely and by the way we should separate politically likely from actually desirable because yeah. we shouldn't let politicians just do the whole well it's too hard I'm not going to do it it's like no no if it's responsible you need to do it anyway mm. um, GST is the easiest one to do for sure I'm just not sure how fair it would be applied um, fairly it would be applied uh, I, I think there's other ways of probably doing it uh, that being as you say Matthew rates aren't fair anyway so it's it's no it's no worse um uh, but it's kind of one of those things of like what if we what if we did all this work and got to the same point but with much much more pain so mm. uh, we could probably avoid that mm. but uh that's just my view i think with super you could make the reasonable case that people were getting more money if it was take, coming out of the take-home pay going into their own accounts so it's less like the government stealing from me uh and more like hey it's future future me gets more money mm. and they won't, won't necessarily love it but at least it's they feel like they're getting something back for it is that fair yeah, yeah. It's a it's a deep it's a deep rabbit hole. It I is. mean, I I do tend to think that, well, his wheels within wheels here. I, I do tend to think interest rates are something that's actually very naturally determined. In yeah. other words, if I'm going to lend money to you, you and I are going to work out what's appropriate. I don't need a yeah. central authority, right? Like, my, how much money I lend you, or whether I lend you money, will mm -hmm. depend on what what needs I currently have. How trustworthy, how, how risky I think it is, mm, mm, what opportunity mm. cost I have by giving it to you, we'll come up with a number. I was like, okay, Scott, here's a hundred bucks, but I want 110 bucks back in six months' time. And you know, we will we will agree to that. So I don't, I, you know, when you have these centrally mandated things, it's kind of a bit of a perversion of what mm. markets and stuff are all about. And I say it's wheels within wheels because, in a way, I know we give a lot of power and agency to central banks, but kind mm. of, kind of, that's what happens, right? It's like the bond market. It's 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 people out there deciding what to what they can um, raise money at what rate of interest mm, and people mm, will choose mm. to buy that or not buy that or buy it and then sell it at different prices depending all on their individual views and the central banks try to influence that with overnight interbank rates and the et cetera et cetera mm, but it's kind mm, of it's I, I I just think the the, uh, the 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 policy tool that is interest rates is is one that is given more. Um, power and uh, effect and importance than than is hmm. than it is probably due. That that is a highly controversial statement. I know that because it's the only thing that we we always 
sort of tend to talk about. And obviously they are important what central banks do. Mm. I just think mm. that there is, when you start really putting the magnifying glass over that and the mechanics and the agents at, at, at play here, it's a, bit, mm. it's a bit more nuanced than I think we often, we often uh, group, give credit to. At the end of the day, it's the market that leads, that leads the central bank and not the other way around. Look, look at what happened after the GFC, right? Central mm. bank, quote unquote, did all this money printing. And yet we never had any inflation or anything at the time. But what they really did was just create a bunch of reserves for commercial banks. They bought a lot of paper mm. off commercial banks, but the commercial banks didn't lend any of it out, never got to the real economy. And that's, and that's because you can't hold a gun towards, you know, JP Morgan's head and say, you've got to lend this out to, to this to this company or to these people, it just yeah. they, they will make their own decision. There is there is very much market forces at play here. I guess is is what I'm rambling about. Yep, I think that's I think that's all fair. Uh, I don't necessarily agree with you as clearly on the role of central banks, but I think you're right about the the, the question about the you know horse and cart and who, who's driving what and to what degree. So yeah. I, I completely agree with that bit. Yeah. Motley Fool Money. For more, subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener. Mate, um, a very different question from Dan, a stock question. Morning, lads, he says, I'm new to investing and I've quickly learned just how much there is to learn about this business. I own a few shares and really just investing change at the moment while I learn. I'm reading and listening to your podcast, which is helping immensely. In the last few episodes, you've talked about the aspects of uh, aspects of Zip, Zipco and why it was never a good long-term buy. And you also mentioned Harvey Norman and that you think it has good growth potential. I'd appreciate if you could spend some time explaining in detail how you analyse these two stocks to reach the conclusions that you have. Cheers from Dan. Uh, Dan, we, we, we did a bit of a, um, an episode while I was away, uh, just kind of breaking out of some companies. So hopefully you've had a chance to listen to that one. Um, we'll talk about Harvey Norman and Zip, mate. Just, just quickly, I'll give a quick um, Cliff's Notes version of my thoughts on it. Mm-hmm. I'll get your thoughts. Mm-hmm. By the way, Dan, I dare say that Andrew, I probably won't agree entirely on some of this. So um, part of the answer is it depends, mm-hmm. right? Or, or everyone has a different view or there is no absolute truth. Um, let me talk to you about Zip. Uh, I So personally, I, I don't remember what I've specifically said or what Andrew said or who said what about what. Uh, Zip has absolutely created. And I think for me, the what I didn't like about investing in these businesses was the question about the long-term viability of the business models and the attractiveness of the business models for the consumer and the business and also the competitive space. So if I think about Zip, first thing, buy now, pay later is a, a, in general, charges a lot more at the moment than every credit card company out there for the merchant. Now, it's free for the consumer, which is why it's attractive. And over time, it's fair to say there haven't been many businesses that can continue to charge ma- massive premiums over their competitors and do that for any extended length of time. So my, my first challenge was how much is this really going to be able to charge once it becomes normal? Uh, what what did the uh, buy now pay letter providers in general? Uh, what are they able to charge? What's their pricing power at that point? Secondly, I wasn't sure how many buy now pay letter options are required by the consumer or the merchant. The concept is there. Once the concept is proven, okay. So buy now pay letter is a thing. Personally, I expected, and it's happened to some degree. They're not entirely yet. I expected buy now pay letter to become a feature of other payment methods. PayPal, I own shares, has buy now, pay later. Commonwealth Bank and I think Bank of Queensland have unveiled effectively um, instalment payments on their savings accounts. Mm-hmm. The, the concept of buy now, pay later is a, you know, when I've said before, when your product becomes someone else's feature, you're in trouble. 
I think buying out pay later, I, I hate it as a financial advisor. It's a terrible thing. Uh, enticing people to use credit they don't need to use. But I think it'll become a feature of other things. And so if you're a standalone product provider, if you, if you, you, know, if you sell cameras and there's a camera on every phone, how many cameras do you sell? Probably not many. So there's that. Um, if buy now, pay later does remain, Afterpay is by far the dominant leader. And why do you need Zip if you've got Afterpay? As a retailer, as a consumer, there are sort of tangential reasons you might need them. Uh, but I don't really think it's a strong one. And then overall, the business model thing, bad debts, cost of capital as interest rates go up, which they are, um, just never never particularly a fan. So that that's that's why. Harvey Norman, uh, very, 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 very different business and a very simple th- theory, which is just, I think for a long time, people will keep shopping at Harvey Norman. Uh, we were shopping increasingly online, including at Harvey Norman. Their online growth was, they were late to the party because Jerry poo-pooed it for years and then finally got on board. Um, Will someone else, you know, put Harvey Norman out of business? Probably not. Will they continue to, to survive? Yes. Will they thrive? I think probably. Um, but even if they don't, with a PE that was in the single digits, uh, didn't have to. Didn't have to grow at all to be a, to be a good investment, given the income, cash flow, and everything else. It was just it just seemed too cheap to ignore. Um, at some point, it's probably a sell. We talk about Fortescue. If Harvey Norman shares double, they'd probably sell them because I don't know how much growth the business has got. So there is some limit to the PE expansion before you say I'm out. Um, but I think it's a strong, consistent business with a very loyal, large customer base who show no signs thus far of going anywhere else as much as others are growing and maybe even growing faster. You don't have to win, you just have to make money. And so uh, Harvey Norman is part of a portfolio. I own shares of that for exactly that reason. Uh, but I just, I, I think it's a, sometimes you don't have to necessarily look too far into the future, particularly with established businesses, right? Um, what if people stop shopping there? Well, at that point, I can make a different decision. What if sales decline? I can make a, I can sell my shares at that point if I want to. Um, at the moment, the business seems solid, uh, seems sustainable. Uh, it seems stupidly cheap. The income is was paying one point seven percent plus franking credits. It's like well, just you know, risk reward felt like a complete no brainer to me. It felt like it was too cheap and the income was too good. Even if the dividend gets cut, even if the shares fall, whatever, I think over time it's a it's a winner. So those are my thoughts on, on those two very, very different businesses. Um, but that's why I think, you said I think Harvey Norman has a good growth potential. You asked about that specifically, Dan. Uh, it, it's not a, uh, there's, there's, no, there's no smoke and mirrors here. It's just literally, I think the economy will grow. I think Australia will spend more on white goods and brown goods and, and the furnishings. I think Harvey Norman will continue to have a share of that because I see no reason for it to change. Um, so I think it'll grow moderately for many, many, many years to come. If it, if and when it doesn't, I get a chance to, to sell my shares. But because I'm paying a, a very, very cheap multiple, the, the downside risk is relatively small. I'm not paying, if I was paying 84 times earnings for Harvey Norman and it had to grow at 20% a year for the next 10 years, then I'd have to make some more heroic assumptions. I don't think I have to at the current price. All right, Rand, that was a reasonably quick run through. Your thoughts on Zip and Harvey Norman? Yeah, it's hard, isn't it? I, I just want to preface everything by saying, uh, Dan, don't don't take what we're saying as gospel. It's it's always <laughs> such a slippery slope. Yeah. I mean, there there yeah. is when it comes to shares, every, you know, it, it's like something else. You know, everyone's got one. Everyone's got mm-hmm. an opinion. Um, uh, and and it's it's. Uh, I'm, I'm just I'm just very nervous of, of always saying any of this because it, it's it's yeah totally uh, you, only you care about your money and it's your responsibility so I'm certainly happy to give thoughts on it but just know before I do that I'm <laughs> yeah. I'm wrong often yeah. so you've been warned um, I agree with you on Zip <laughs> mate um, Zip is the, the, here's the thing with Zip is that the, you you can have an opinion on on the on the quality of the product and the offering and the likely mm. growth. Mm. Um, and you might have had a positive opinion on that, 
the thing that kept me away from it was that it was it people would go oh it's great because it's a new way of paying and they're going to get heaps of market share and they're going to grow really well and my response to that was well even if that's true it's in the price this thing was trading on a forward price to sales of like 15 at one point in time now, again, that's sort of like, well, is that a high or, or a low number? Or just, again, mm-hmm. think about it from first principles here. If they never had any costs and they paid out whatever they sold and a, a dollar's worth of you know re- revenue, they got to keep it all and they paid it all out to you as a shareholder, mm-hmm. it would still mm-hmm. take you 15 years to be made whole yeah, that's again. Right. Like, that's think right. about it. That, and that's obviously, impossible, by the way. Yeah. But it's- <laughs> It's impossible. They have costs. Mm-hmm. They, you've got to pay their staff. Their, their servers mm-hmm. need, you know, it just- it, can't be done so it's and that's fine and that's and sometimes that makes perfect sense because you know what they continue to compound their top line at 40 percent. eventually they're yeah. kicking out a 30 percent net margin they're just gushing cash all over the place and mm-hmm. it might be 10 years away but the magnitude of the money is so high that it's still it's still worth it when you sort of do all the mm-hmm. sums and, and stuff and that's that's the story again of classic of amazon and all, and all those success stories so it's it's fine but mm-hmm. it's just that it's sort of like well if that all happens i get an i get a decent return not a wonderful return. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's and right. and it is. I often talk about asymmetry. It just meant that okay, two scenarios here. One, it goes perfectly well, and I might get ten or fifteen percent per year. That's very decent. Mm, mm, it mm. might not go so well, and I lose ninety percent of my money. Like so, yeah. it's like well, yeah. that. Is, that is an awful bet. I want the kind of bet where it's like if I'm wrong, okay, I might be. I'm down or twenty or thirty mm-hmm. percent. If I'm right, mm-hmm. I'm five to ten x higher. That's that's right. what I'm looking for. You know. So that yeah. I think. I think it was this this term price for perfection just struck me when it came to afterpay and that. And then I would layer on top of that I, a lot of the doubts that you had over the actual product and its, its long-term viability and pricing power and, and all the rest of it. So it's just, I think one one thing we are, we are uh, incentivized in this game towards or driven towards is that you feel as though you have to have an opinion on everything. Mm. And mm. I just think it's, it's silly. You know, a lot of the time your opinion can be, I just don't know. And I don't know is fine. Just move on. Wait till wait till you find something you've got a lot more certainty on and invest in that. Um, so that's that's zip. And and now the argument is well, now it's come back so far. Maybe surely it's 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 in it now. It's just it's just too uncertain. I don't, I just don't know. And so that's so I'm I'm gonna go with other stuff. Uh, Harvey Norman, boring is the proverbial. I don't think they're gonna grow much. I think they'll probably go sort of in line with the general Australian economy. You know three maybe 4% per year. Um, but having said that, as you were point out, it's a, it's a very, even if you, even if they had a sort of, sort of super normal profits there for a little bit, mm-hmm. even if you sort of pull that back a bit, you're probably still getting a 6%, 5.5%, 6% fully franked yield. So right. if you buy it at the current price of 435 and you sell it for that in 10 years' time and you've gotten a franked up dividend of close enough to 10%, <laughs> There are worse problems to have. There are far worse problems to have. So I, I 100% get the investment case. But it's going to be one of those ones that because it is, you know, it is an established business, safe pair of hands, all of that kind of stuff. It's never, you're never going to lose, you know, half your money on it. <laughs> right. And you're never going to double your money on it. So it's kind That's of, right. there's opportunity cost with everything, as I've said before. So the op- mm-hmm. this one is, yeah, I'll get, I'll get a very respectable rate of return. And that's as best as I can hope for. Maybe a few things go wrong and, and maybe I lose a little bit. It's kind of like, that, that, that's kind of what it is. And if that's what you're after, and by the way, there'll be a lot of people listening is like, actually, that's exactly what I'm after. You know, the, the 25-year-old is after some really exciting that's right, that's right. long-term sort of growth plays. It's like, yeah, no, nah, yeah. keep looking. The, uh, the 55-year-old is just after a really attractive, fully frank dividend. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if that's what you're after, then yeah, it's, there's nothing wrong with it. 
Nice. Hopefully that helps, Dan. Let's go to Craig's question, Ram. Uh, Hey, Scott Ram, love your work, says Craig. Uh, This is my third question in as many months. We're loving the repeat questions. Thank you. And I really appreciate the logical and reasoned answers you give to all the questions on the pod. I think he's talking to me there, Andrew, not you. Um, Uh, I've I've been investing for seven years, says Craig, and I built a portfolio of 26 stocks. My investing style is a combination of both of yours with a mix of long-established dividend-paying companies and younger growth companies with great potential. should say I've got a decent number of growth stocks. We don't talk about them quite so often, but uh, I'm, not, uh, I'm not as boring as I might seem, nor, uh, nor am, I, am I as... Uh, uh, what's the right word for Andrew's investing? Um, Bold. Bold. There we go. And let's just say I can't wait for the day when Scott doesn't have to drink when a certain company is mentioned anymore because there's out of the woods not gone to zero. Ha ha, says Craig. Thank you. My question this time is about your thoughts on balancing a portfolio. One of the first stocks I bought has done quite well and is now a disproportionately high portion of my portfolio. If you're allowed to mention it, we are. The company is ResMed. It makes up just under 30% of the value of my portfolio and has been quite volatile over the past 12 months or more. I'm a big believer in the best time to sell a stock is never, but what are your thoughts on reducing my exposure to a single company in my portfolio? I'm sure many investors find themselves in the same situation from time to time. So just wondering, should I take action or not? Cheers from Craig. What a what a a what a great a problem to have. <laughs> yeah. uh, and B, I, I've, I've been there and, and it's a tough one because... You know, uh, on one hand, you could sort of say this is an incredible company, it, it, mm. and it is an incredible company. I mean, they they have they have yep. grown their earnings at a very attractive rate for a very long period of time. Mm. They have a very high return on equity, which just means the profit they make relative to the net assets of the business is very high. It's a very profitable company. Just it 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 um, for every dollar invested by the company, they they get a good return mm. on that. Mm. They pay a dividend. They've got a st- strong balance sheet. Good competitive position. Great. There's, there's a lot to like about it, right? Mm. Um, and so do you necessarily want to end that relationship by overthinking some portfolio considerations? <laughs> mm. Maybe not. But on the other hand, it's just like, well, if I was building a portfolio today, would I put 30% of my money in ResMed? No, mm. I wouldn't. Mm. And that's not that I don't like it. It's just like I just, I'd have to really, really like it and really think it's extraordinary value to sort of justify that. So it's a dilemma. It's 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 really tricky. Um I would be a little bit tempted to knock a little bit off just just mm. because of that concentration, um, unless unless I just thought it was just the most incredible value and deserved that that kind of weighting. And then there's tax considerations around all of that. I know, so it's not a, it's not an easy mm-hmm. answer. But yeah, I I would I would be I would be thinking a little bit of a reallocation there just 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 for the the. The diversification uh, root and portfolio structure um, mm-hmm. considerations. Yes, a um, couple of extra thoughts from me, Craig. It depends on how you're building your portfolio. If you're adding money regularly, you may find that oh, that point. takes count of itself to some mm-hmm. degree. Uh, it depends how big it is, how much money you've got, how much money you're going to add. Uh, let's say you've got a ten thousand dollar portfolio, you're adding a thousand dollars a month. Well, in a year, you're going to have added more than you started with. Now, if it's a hundred thousand dollar portfolio, you're adding five hundred bucks a month. It's going to go much, much longer time, but it still will get there over over some period of time. And so, if you're adding regularly, um, there is there's no perfect answer, but there's no there's no math formula where you can say, well, okay, well, it's, if you've got this size, you're adding this percentage, then it's worth something. But just be mindful that as you add money, uh, my my um, yeah, I've even noticed my own portfolio because of the way this is I don't track my portfolio during, using Comsec. By the way, I have the have the numbers there, but I use ShareSite. Um, but as uh, as 
uh, you use Comsec when you add money. It starts with zero again. So you, you're, as you add money to your portfolio and buy new shares, the, the gain goes down. So you go from being like an eight percent gain to make a seven percent gain all of a sudden because you've added some money to the portfolio, and it's just because you're starting with zero in that element of the of the maths. Or if you sell something and buy something else, again it starts with zero because the way they they don't look at total portfolio, they only look at the the value of each position added together. Um, so it's just just I just want to kind of throw that out as a way by way of comparison. So if you're adding money regularly, think about that. Um, uh, I can give you personal advice, but I will say you talk about the size and you say which has been volatile of late. So it's obviously playing on your mind. And that might, if you're someone out there who's like, oh, gee, it's been volatile recently, that's telling you something. It's telling you how you're thinking. And sometimes, without getting all uh, all kumbaya, listening to yourself can be useful. So how do you feel about that volatility? You know, is it like, gee, it's up and down a lot, but I don't really care, but gee, it's been amazing. That's one thing. If it's like, oh, it's been up and down a lot, and uh, it's been a winner, but uh, gee, I, I'm not sure. Then you're telling yourself something else as well. So knowing yourself and acting, in keeping with your own mentality and temperament, super, super important. Um I have had in the past companies that are that large. I think Berkshire is probably, I don't know what it would be, 25% of my portfolio combined, something like that. Um, but it's Berkshire Hathaway, right? So I, I, I literally couldn't care less. Um, in fact, my US portfolio, when I when I wake up in the morning and if I see what the S&P 500 is done, I check Berkshire's share price because the rest doesn't matter. Uh, my US portfolio in particular, I think Berkshire's more than half my US portfolio. And so it's kind of one of those, you know, if Berkshire's up, I'm probably up. If Berkshire's down, I'm probably down. The rest kind of is, it's interesting over the long term, but daily or weekly, it just doesn't matter. So mm. it's just a bit of fun. Um, so yeah, I think 30% is a lot. I think most people would struggle to maintain discipline and emotional comfort with a 30% position. So for, for our listeners who may or may not include Craig, um, if it's that, then have a think about that. If it's if it's not, then uh, then maybe it's different. But yeah, just think about some of those as, as um, considerations. I just, uh, can I just quickly add, because yeah, Craig, Craig mentioned he's been doing it for seven years. Yes. And um, in, in, in a lot of ways, that's a, that's a pretty good stretch of time. And, you know, others, it's kind of like maybe it feels short, but it's still, it's, it's, a, it's enough of a length of time where Craig has had the experience of mm. volatility, like a real experience. Like yeah, t- yeah, yeah, that's 2015 true. to 2016, that's the market dropped <laughs> yeah. nearly 20%. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Halfway yeah. through 2018 to the beginning of 2019, <laughs> dropped 20% again. Yeah, yeah. COVID yeah. came along and it dropped 35%. <laughs> Uh, more recently, yeah. it's come down. So you just sort of like it, and, and yet, and yet, point. between 2015 and today, the market back in 2015 was like, well, the all odds was at 5,500. Now it's at 7,400. So it's yeah. it's sort of, there's a lot of, there's a, you know, you can look at his, history and the theory and all the stuff that we crap on about day, you know, week in, week out. <laughs> but having experience. Add, add and, meaningful value with you. Yeah, add meaningful value. But, but the meaning, but uh, there is something about ex, uh, uh, having experienced it. Um, mm. There's something called the Lindy effect, which is worth a Google. Okay. And um, it basically says that the longer something has gone on, the long, the likely, more likely it is to persist. And I think okay. <laughs> I was thinking the other day that's very true for investors. So you, mm. if you sort of start dabbling in the market and you get wiped out or you get sick of it pretty quickly, that's that's it. But the longer you've been mm. at it, the more you've had the, ex- the direct visceral experience of these things, the more sanguine you become, the better you become the more likely you are to continue for doing it for more and more and more and more time. And you just said before, it's like, I couldn't care less because Berkshire's done this. Because I bet, I bet, that, I bet that's true, but I bet it wasn't true the, the, the first few years of your investing journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. now you're at a point because you've been doing it so long. It's like the market could almost Good do point. anything. And if you were to say to me, oh God, yeah, Ram, I'm, I'm out. I'd be like, what? I'd be really, <laughs> yeah, I would be really surprised. I'm, cash. I'm all in Bitcoin. Yeah, all in Bitcoin. Yeah. You know, so it's kind of, it's sort of, it's, yeah, I, yeah. I, I just, I, yeah. 
I think Craig, you no, nice, good. You, you've good got a, you, your story there paints a lot of lessons. Nice. Um, I want from Jamison, and he's brother Kieran. He says, Jamison says, uh, "G'day, Scott and Ram from the other side of the podcast machine." My brother and I have been loving the latest batch of episodes, especially the practical ones that put all the theory into practice. That's good. I'm curious with ETFs, he says. Who gets the voting rights for the individual shares held within the fund? Obviously not us, the unit holders. Does the manager or some other third-party group decide what the vote should be? Or do those shares not come with voting rights? Considering the stakes some of the funds have in many Australian companies, that would give those funds considerable sway in company decisions. It seems that ETF providers like Vanguard and BlackRock have a majority, sorry, have a major, if not majority stake in almost every large company I look at. Should we be concerned about the monopoly these companies seem to have or am I worrying about nothing? Thank you for both sharing your wisdom and humour with us and being the only podcast we don't need to listen to at one and a half times speed. <laughs> Cheers, Jamison and Kieran. Uh, that's brilliant. Um, that's excellent. Jamison, the funds make the votes. They vote on their own behalves. Generally speaking, they are pretty conservative voters and you don't have anything to worry about with the way these guys are voting their shares, in my opinion. Um, uh, the, the stakes they hold are nowhere near half, by the way. They'd probably be lucky. Would it be even 10% round? I'm not sure. It might be. Mm. Um, I, I, I think it's a, a, a great question. Good, think, good thinking. I think it's an absolute total not event. But you may have a different view, Ram. Yeah, no, I think that's largely true. I, I was actually thinking this is why some of these sort of um, fashionable ideas that you know we can laugh at. We sort of we've gone. I don't want to. I don't want to open up this Pandora's box. But we've oh, talked no. a bit about ESG and all, yes. all of this kind of stuff. You know, I have some thoughts. Yeah, it kind of, it kind <laughs> of. You know, on one hand, it's all pretty silly. On the other hand, it's mm, kind of mm. like when you do have some of these big institutions with big invest and uh, uh, influence. And it is all the rage now to sort of have that kind of focus on things and that they might mm. feel as though for political or whatever reasons that they need to vote in a certain way. It actually, it actually can, it can be influential. Um, mm. I don't think it's ever going to like change any major direction for any, any of these, these big companies, but um, mm. they definitely have power. They, defi- they definitely have. I mean, Vanguard was to call up CSL and say, hey, listen, we're going to, vote against this kind of yeah. thing they'll, they'll, they will yeah. listen they will 100% yes. listen <laughs> yeah, they really will. Um, so they do have yeah. I mean absolutely the listener is 100% there's a lot right. of potential power a lot yeah. of potential power um, but they, they're not they're not um, uh, what's the what's the word for it they're, they're not they're not advocating for any sort of particular kind yes. of they are pa- passive yeah, yep. yeah yep. ideologically as well as practically yep Yep, I don't think there's any more we need to add to that. Good, really good question, Jamison. Good thinking, but uh, not such, not something to, to worry too much about. Um, mate, I want to I want to finish off uh, with with a question from Grace. And Grace says, "Hello, Scott and Andrew. I recently discovered the Motley Fool podcast and have spent the last several months going deep into the archives to listen to every episode of the show. Oh dear." Thank you for doing that, Grace. I, I apologise for our first year or so because it probably wasn't great. Um, I've said before, we, we the first episode was literally entirely scripted, which compared to what we do now is, uh, is slightly Pol- different. Pol- let me Robinson. put it that way. Mm-hmm. I have learned so much, she says, built a small library based on your book recommendations and I'm ready to put it all into practice. I've also signed up for your service, thank you, and aim to invest $1,000 a month into the market. I have two questions I would appreciate your take on. Uh, and Grace got some PS at the end, which I will I will share. One, in terms of structuring your portfolio, I understand it's important to have a broad base of diversification, and I'm aiming for a core and satellite strategy. I want to ensure that I have a broad exposure to the market as the core of my portfolio, but also invest into some direct companies that are compelling. Given I'm just getting started, I'm mindful it will take a long time to build up that core base. 
she says in brackets, let's say, of ET, let's say ETF such as Vanguard's Australian uh, ETF, Australian shares ETF. However, isn't this core base essentially what my super is? As I have invested it into a 50-50 high growth Aussie international index. Is it logical for, to treat my super as the core of my investment portfolio and treat my monthly investment contributions as the funding for my satellite? Is my logic flawed in any way? What do you reckon, mate? Core and satellite, super, and then outside super? Is that a, one way to look at it? Yeah, no, I think it's entirely sensible. Yeah, I mean, yep. you keep keep the sense, keep the um, super for the, the the more conservative stuff. You know, you're going to be adding, or your employer is going to be adding to that mm. every month. Your dollar cost averaging, mm. you're building up a lovely nest egg. Everything is is going well. You might you you could choose to contribute more to that, and there are tax advantages and other other things that we've talked about recently mm. as to why you you could consider that kind of stuff and keep the stuff outside of it for for the stuff that's a, a little bit more. Um, spicy shall we say uh yeah but i mean i think it's always a good idea to to start to start small and you can you can move you, you can move the dial as your experience and and yeah. uh, grows I, I think you don't need to jump in the deep end to begin with so you might have maybe when you very 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 first start out it's 90 percent in etfs and all the good safe super sensible stuff and that way, if the other ten percent blows up, it's not you know it's not great, but it's not the end of, far from the end of the world. And then you know five you know, yeah, as as you can move that dial as you gain in experience and confidence. Nothing wrong with that at all. Yep, um, Grace. My only additional thought is I don't know that you need to think about them as two separate pieces. We said before, think about the whole lot as one big pile and work out how you want to split it. Is kind of so if you want to use super as that and that works for you, then that's fantastic. You could have half and half in each. You could have you know core outside satellite inside you can have half core half satellite in each of those things it, it, whatever whatever makes most sense for you but but try and think about the whole lot as one big group rather than two separate uh, elements in my thoughts just to avoid any unnecessary or, or unintended consequences but otherwise perfect what are your thoughts on niche etfs she asks that are heavily weighted to specific companies versus direct investment in the underlying companies do you see value in direct ownership versus the etf vehicle for example, she says, I'm very current investing in the BetaShares NASDAQ 100 ETF, which is heavily weighted towards Apple, Microsoft, Amazon, Tesla, etc. I own some of those for the disclosure. And pondering whether it is best to just invest, say, $1,000 each in the top 10 holdings versus $10,000 in the ETF itself. Mm. Um, reckon, mate? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll, just full disclosure, I've got that ETF uh, in my yeah, super as well. <laughs> um <laughs> The top ten will—I forget exactly—but they will represent the the lion's share of of the weighting. So it's kind mm. of even those hundred sort of stocks that are that are in there. It's sort of like as mm. you said before. It's like it all depends on what the main ones are kind of doing. Really, at the end mm. of the day, mm. I just like the convenience and the one-stop shop of it all. So you, you could yeah. you could you could invest directly in the top ten, and that's probably um, advantageous if you want to exercise voting rights and all this other kind of stuff. So I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't uh, say it's it's a bad idea, but I just mm. I'm a I'm a pretty hands off, lazy kind of guy when it comes to that <laughs> side of things, and um, mm. I just I love the convenience of just saying throw a net over the 100 biggest tech stocks in in the US, and just give me a little give me a little bit of each, and, and I'm you know I, I can focus mm. on on my other things. I think that's right. I so I'm going to answer slightly longer. Um, you bet niche ETFs and then use the NASDAQ 100 as an example. And, and I guess, I, Grace, not, not to be splitting hairs, but I don't think I'd consider the NASDAQ 100 ETF a niche ETF. It, it's, it's, it, it is, by definition, skewed towards tech, and so it's less broad, narrower, than there may be an S&P 500 ETF, for example, in, in, entirely. 
but a but a, a an index based a, a, an exchange based effectively Nasdaq exchange ETF isn't really niche. Um, so I kind of would answer the question separately. You, uh, you know by now, I don't love niche ETFs generally. Um, if you're buying a cybersecurity ETF but don't know about the individual companies and their prospects and their values, then buying the ETF to me is a little bit of a challenging thing to do to try and get the benefits of ETFs that we talk about when we talk about those broad-based index ETFs. It's not low cost. It's not diversified. Um, there is no sense of whether or not they're super undervalued, fairly valued or overvalued. So buying them, buying that ETF just for the theme I think it's like saying, well, retail's good. I should buy company X. Like, well, will that retailer win? Or, or I'll buy three random retailers. Well, is that, you know, or even all the retailers. Are they cheap? Are they expensive? I think retail's cheap right now. I think, buy, imagine my buy now, pay later ETF because you thought buy now, pay later was going to be a thing. Since then, they've almost all created. You weren't wrong about the theme. You, you just, the, the companies were stupidly expensive and, and you lost a lot of money. So niche ETFs, I don't like. I don't think the NASDAQ 100 qualifies as a niche ETF. And again, not to split hairs, but it's important, I think, to distinguish between the two. Um, Can I just so very, I very, would, very quickly, oh, case in point, the ninth and 10th largest holdings are Pepsi and Costco. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> there you go. Um, so on the, look, so on the ETF itself, if you bought the 10, you are, yes, it's heavily weighted towards those top 10. So you're getting most of the ETF anyway. What I like about the ETF is, it is hands off as Andrew said, but also when the 11th company becomes the ninth biggest because it does really, really well, and the 10th company becomes a 20th because it goes half broke. You, you don't have to make those decisions of like, well, do I like it now? Do I like it more because it's cheaper? Do I not like it because the business is broken? The new biggest one, um, PageCo, when PageCo you know, breaks into the top mm-hmm. 10, uh, when Strawman gets listed on the NASDAQ and breaks into the top 10, uh, do, you have, do you buy it? Do you sell uh, Microsoft to buy that? Do you add money to it? I have no problem with doing those, by the way. If you want to manage your US, I have US portfolio that I manage as individual shares plus the NASDAQ ETF. So I get both sides of it. Um, generally speaking, I love the ETF idea because it, it balances for you, right? If Google gets bigger, I own shares, uh, you get you get more money. If if Google doesn't get bigger but Strawman comes in and, and gets bigger, then I win because I own the ETF as well. It just, it just it's a very simple way to do it. So personally, if you're going to buy just the top ten because they're the top ten, I would buy an index. If you're buying ten out of the top twelve because you like those ten, you don't like the other two, then that's very different mm. if you've done the research. So that's that's kind of my my idea. Yeah. Grace is excited at the potential to hear the answer to these questions while I am meal prepping for the week on a Sunday morning. Thank you for the new release time, she says. Thank you again for all your knowledge and making investing seem approachable. Cheers, Grace. Now, she says it then, no need to read these on the podcast, but... Now, Grace, I'm going to assume you didn't specifically not want me to read them on the podcast. My apologies in advance if you don't, but I wanted to read these, Andrew, because uh, I, think they're, I think they're useful and I think they are in keeping with what we're trying to do with this podcast. Grace says, P.S., my husband introduced me to your show and I really appreciate the episodes you have done about engaging women in investing. The share market used to terrify me and now my husband and I enjoy analysing where we will invest each month together. Learning about investing and enhancing our finances has become my passion and I owe it all to your show. We don't want too much credit for that, Grace, but I'm just super glad you've got involved and got engaged. We've been able to help you with That's that. Awesome. She says, PPS, I also really appreciate your insight into teaching kids about money. My little ones are six, three, and one, and I am so passionate about giving them the tools of financial knowledge. I grew up knowing nothing about personal finance or investing, just was lucky to be a natural saver, but wish I had known more in my 20s. In brackets, ah, all that potential compounding time. Mm-hmm. Close brackets. I believe this information is so important to share with our kids, have loved some of your ideas about picking stocks with them, and I'm excited to do so as they get older. 
thank you again from Grace. That's awesome. And I just wanted to share that because it's kind of, you know, for everything that we do about helping people across the board, anyone who wants to listen will happily help. Um, but if we're helping women invest, we're helping people help their kids invest, then hopefully we're doing some, some good work. And it's not about us, it's about our listeners. But um, thanks, Grace. I appreciate the kind words, mate. It was very kind of you to say. And hopefully we are uh, helping some people make some, make some changes. So that's a, that's a pretty positive thing. Yep, I think it's. I think it is important to push back against the BS that is. Like all industries, have their, you know, oh, mostly us, un- unappealing sides. But the finance industry is horrible, and it just it is it is entirely yeah. geared around uh, making it seem opaque and difficult and, and inaccessible. Mm. Because mm. if that's the case, then yep. you need someone to help you do it. And you know, I actually feel I've used this analogy before. I think it's the same with the. Health, uh, the fitness sector as well. I mean, it's just like it's not like a personal trainer can't do wonders for you. Absolutely, they can. Mm. But mm. you know, maybe give up the ciggy, stop drinking six pack of beer a day, and go for a walk occasionally. That was just like the the, the quantum Im- level of improvement, like mm. jump on your improvement and your health is just so ridiculous, right? And I think it's like I think it's like our industry to a large extent. Like spend less than what you earn, buy yep. broad base index yep. ETF, you know. Yep. Go go go! Do what what whatever invigorates you in this life. It's it, it's 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 absolutely accessible and it's really really straightforward and it's really easy. The only the only thing that I wish we could we, uh, know and and if I did this, I would be doing would be how to sort of accelerate <laughs> everything and just like make yeah. make make a fortune really quickly. But I can't I can't do it unfortunately. So I'm sort of stuck with get rich slow. But that's pretty mm. cool. I'll take that. You know, I'll I'll take I'll take that road, that pretty sure road. Over, uh, over, you know, coin flipping. So, yeah, I'm glad, glad, glad it's. I'm glad it's, it's, it's coming across as accessible and 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 also uh, empowering and exciting because it, it really is. It can get pretty dry, all this kind of stuff, mm, but mm. and it, it can it can also come across as pretty sort of like you know we're all about money and it's not really. It's all about it's all about choice and freedom and totally. you know lowering anxiety out there. Money is just what is is the mechanism that we sort of all use to inter- interact in our modern society. And it's not about driving Lambos. It's not. Mm-hmm. Um, if I had a billion dollars, I wouldn't buy a Lamborghini. Um, it, it's just, some it, would. It's yeah, some. Well, you know, he, he already thinks he's going to buy one. He's not going to. Well, you no. know, look, whatever, whatever floats your boat. We've all got different <laughs> passions in life, but it is, it is all, a, it is all about sort of yeah. Um, Security and freedom and all all of the things yeah, that are super totally important right. to being to being totally. human. I, I would argue. Um, so yep. if you can get if you can get if you can if if, if you can go in with that mindset, you're, you're gonna you're gonna probably do pretty well. It's a proxy for choice and, and freedom, as you say, mate. That's look. That's you know, frankly. I, I don't think it's too controversial to say. I'd rather help a whole lot of people get started investing than make a moderately rich person moderately richer. Uh, and I'll do yes. both because that's what we do. Yeah. But like realistically, and if members love us and if they're moderately rich and they want to get moderately richer, then cool, we're here to help them. And you know, the, our advice is, the good thing about our advice, the good thing about shares is one share or a thousand shares or a million shares, you get the same percentage return. Mm-hmm. And it's just such a cool thing to do because if you're just getting started, you want to buy a share or something, great. And if someone's got a thousand of them, well, they'll do well, you'll do well, everyone does well if you, you know, if we do our jobs properly and we help them invest. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we get some people started through that process as well as helping those other people, then hey, even better. Yeah. All right. I think we are done here, mate. Um, if you want to, you know all the details, info at fool.com.au. Look us up on all the socials. Andrew will be on TikTok very, very shortly, I'm sure. Stay tuned for an announcement. No, I'm kidding. Any, Any day now. Week. Any day. <laughs> any day until that day full on full on the motley fool and people appearing in this program may have positions in the companies mentioned general advice only please speak to your financial professional to understand how it may pertain to your situation subscribe to the free newsletter at fool.com.au forward slash listener
The Motley Fool operates under financial services licence 400691.